I'm preaching from the 40th chapter of Isaiah. I've uh, chosen to preach from Isaiah 40, these Christmas messages, the Advent um, messages of Isaiah 40. It is the text, primarily, uh, primarily the text of uh, Messiah, Handel's Messiah. And so it's been a rich and rewarding um, study from Isaiah 40. I'm reading today to finish this series from verse 28, and we'll read through 31. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Chuck Swindoll, Swindoll tells about his favorite book. It's a, it's a book of children's uh, stories, and its title is Alexander and the Horrible, Terrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. I want you to listen to this guy's day. He kind of started out like mine last Friday. He says, I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running. And I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. After school, after a terrible day at school, a horrible visit with the dentist, and a no good stop at the shoe store, Alexander slumps in his chair at the supper table. His troubles continue. There was lima beans and I hate lima beans. There was kissing on television, and I hate kissing. My bath was too hot. I got soap in my eyes. My marble went down the drain, and I had to wear my railroad train pajamas. I hate my railroad train pajamas. When I went to bed, Nick took back the pillow he said I could keep, and the Mickey Mouse nightlight burned out, and I bit my tongue. The cat wants to sleep with Anthony and not me. It's been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. We've all had days like that, I suspect. And we've turned to our spouse to say, Honey, one day we'll look back on this and laugh. But it wasn't funny while it was happening. And sometimes we use humor just to hide the pain. I heard about a man who sent his photo, his snapshot to a to a lonely hearts club, and they fired it right back with a note saying, we're not that lonely yet. <laughs> and, and sometimes the, the, the hurt uh, cannot be laughed away. I suppose one of the loneliest, the saddest stories I've ever heard came out of the life of Joseph Baker, the famous industrialist. And they were giving a testimonial dinner in his honor, and some of the most important people were there telling, talking about him, giving testimony to him. It was time for him to say a few words in a little while, and he got up to speak. This is what he said. He said, Gentlemen, 
I appreciate all that you've done for me this evening, but it really doesn't matter to me anymore. My wife died three months ago, and I have no one to share this joy with. I suppose that we've all felt that kind of hurt and pain at some time in our life. And so one more time, we turn back to Isaiah 40, where people are hurting, to those in exile who not only lost a family member, they lost their family. They lost everything they had, their nation. Their city was in ruins. Their temple was leveled. And their national leaders, which symbolized their hope for the future and their security, were scattered to the four winds. By now, we know these people pretty well. We are well acquainted with them as we've traversed our way through Isaiah 40. But we've not only seen these people in exile in Babylon. We've seen them every morning when we peer in the mirror at ourselves. We've seen them in the doctor's office. And we've seen them as we've tried to read between the lines of the cheery Christmas cards we've received. For the exile is every man. And so not to just the exiles, but to us today, these words were addressed. To those who have no strength, He gives power. And to those who are without might, He increases strength. Not even the vitality of youth will prevent weariness and fatigue and despair. Even young men will find themselves exhausted and fainting. And then He comes to the most beautiful statement ever made and some of the most beautiful words ever printed on parchment. They that wait upon the Lord shall mount up with wings of eagles, shall run and not be weary, shall walk and not faint. And there we have the clue as to how to hang in there in the face of the difficult situations of life, indeed, by the mercy of God. But before we really understand or develop what the mercy of God accomplishes, there are a couple of things we need to observe. The first is that God understands how exhausting life is. He knows how we hurt. He really does. He knows your day begins with the obnoxious sound of the alarm clock. He knows that these busy days are also producing rat races of schedules and demands. He knows how our society with its uh, double stamp days and bargain basements can make a, take a toll on the human body. He knows how tiring and exhausting responsible labor is and he knows how damaging it is not to have a job at all. He understands the suffering and the hurt of humanity. He really does. The second thing we need to observe before we set the table, as we set the table for this message, is to try to find some definition for the term, they that wait upon the Lord, because it's a common term in the Old Testament, and there's so much promise attendant to that term. As a matter of fact, if you look through the Bible and just follow in your concordance how many times the word wait upon the Lord is found, and then just name those promises that attend that great statement. What does it mean to wait upon the Lord? It means expectant dependency. It means to trust God's control of life and to trust your life to God's control. It's the New Testament idea of simply trusting in Jesus. It means to stop complaining and to stop criticizing and just lean heavily on God and to trust Him. And the result of that waiting upon the Lord, He describes in this beautiful metaphor. 
He says that the mercy of God brings, makes, provides strength for soaring, and they shall mount up on wings of eagles. God's people were never meant to be earthbound. Garden Kleiner tells about visiting the, the St. Louis Zoo in the summertime. If you've ever been to St. Louis in the summertime, you know it gets the heat is sweltering there. I was there one time for the Southern Baptist Convention. It was about 105 degrees and the humidity was about 100%. It was the hottest place I've ever been. He said he went to the zoo at, in, in St. Louis with his daughter. He said it was just about sunset as they made their way toward where the birds were caged. And he said he went first to where this gigantic American eagle was caged. He said the big eagle was perched on a perch. His wings were held out, trying to get a little air there under those feathers. He said his mouth was gaped open. He was gasping for breath. And in his eyes, he said, there was this tortured look as he gazed out toward the sunset. And Garden Kleiner said as he turned to leave, he said that, that eagle lurched against the chicken wire mesh that separated him from his freedom and screamed a pitiful scream. He said, as I turned away, I thought, what a tragedy that this great creature was meant for the heights, meant to soar, and he's bound and chained to the earth. God's people were never meant to be earthbound. When he talks about mounting on wings of eagles, he's talking about the ecstasy and the exuberance that's too infrequent to the Christian experience of most of us. Perhaps in your memory are those times when you mounted on wings of eagles. Perhaps dimly in your past you remember those times when your prayers were heard and answered. When you had power, when you witnessed when you taught a Sunday school class and there was as if God were on it, when you would come to worship and there was this thrill, this ecstasy of being in the rarefied air of God Himself to enjoy the glory of the Lord and you walked out of here feeling like you could fly. To mount on wings of eagles means to get above the care, the sorrow of this dim spot we call earth. It means somehow to get into contact with the gracious, glorious power of heaven itself. It means to live in that attitude of joy and victory and power that few of us have ever known. But when you study this passage, a close observation, a close study of the, of the term mount on wings of eagles is interesting. Really, the best translation of it is they shall sprout new pinions. He's saying they're going to get new feathers. They're going to get new wings. They'll sprout new feathers. They'll get new wings. They'll have new pinions. Do I speak to anybody this morning who feels really in their heart that you have seen your best days, that the real things of life are behind you, that the best days are in the past? Do I speak to someone this morning who feels that all of the good things of life are in the past, the best times are gone? 
Do I speak to anybody this morning who feels that you fail the Lord so often and so much that He could not possibly have anything left for you? Isaiah shakes his head and says, God is the God of the second chance. Remember that he's writing to folks who had been in exile for 50 years, their past retirement age, and he's saying to them, God's not through with you yet. God has a plan for your life. God has something marvelous and wonderful yet for you. He has wings for you. Isn't it marvelous that he's the God of the second half? I read the woman, a woman's testimony. She said when she... Reminds me of my daughter. We had matching dents, you know, on both, and she was learning how to drive. He, he, she said, there I was in the middle of this intersection in this car. My mother's brand new fancy car just crushed. And she said, the cops came and they called my father and he came and she said, I just knew I was going to be in a heap of trouble. Probably never get to drive again. <laughs> He said, after my father kind of took care of things, found out nobody was hurt, are you all right, honey, everything is fine. He said, she said, he reached into his pocket and pulled out his keys, the keys to his car. Reached over and took my hand, put his keys in my hand and said, here, take my car and go on home. And when I finish up here, I'll catch a ride. We'll get the insurance man to bring me home. And she said, you cannot imagine what that did to my ego, my self-image. She said, when I put his keys into his car and turned the key, and, and I, he said, she said, I felt like I could fly. My father was saying to me, I'm not finished with you. You have a, you, you, you still, you have another chance. You know what God is doing in Babylon He's coming to Babylon and he hands his keys to those folks in Babylon and he says, I'm not finished with you yet. I have work left for you. That's what Christmas is all about. Just for a few moments indeed, these shepherds found that vitality to soar and they jumped fences on their way to Bethlehem and they left behind all of the pain and the, and the suffering that was a part of their existence and just for a moment they got eagles' wings. The mercy of God is for soaring the mercy of God is that we run and not be weary. You know what that means? It means that we have strength for the crises, the crisis moment. I'm told that in the marathon, somewhere between mile 18 and mile 22 of that 26-mile race, there is what the runners call, it's what they call hitting the wall. The runners hit the wall. Now, for me, it's after mile one. But, but in the marathon, somewhere between 18 and 22, in that, that, that 18 mile and 22nd mile, they hit the wall. Now the wall is the point in time when they feel like they can't go on any farther. We don't know whether it's psychological or physical, but we do know that at that point when they hit the wall, it's the, there's the greatest temptation to quit there that at any other time in the race 
their hearts pounding, their lungs are burning, there's dizziness and nausea, and there's this little voice that begins to whisper in their ear, why torture yourself, man? Why endure this suffering? Why don't you quit? Now some of you have hit the wall. You've come to a point in your life where you feel like, why go on? Why endure this pain? Why don't I just quit? And you say, no, not me. Well, if you haven't, you will. Somewhere in everybody's life, between mile 18 and mile 22, in this marathon of endurance, somewhere in there, there's going to be this crisis, and you'll feel like that the whole, your whole life hangs on the issue of an instant, and all of the responsibility will be so thrust on you, it'll require you to call into play every ounce of your energy. It's inevitable. I remember after Jesus fed the 5,000, He was very careful that nothing be lost, and so He gathered up the fragments. Now, if He was very careful that nothing be lost and gathered up the fragments, what happened to the fragments? Twelve baskets of them. They didn't go out and dump them in the lake. He gave one to every disciple, I believe, <laughs> the dividend of their investment. In the Lord. Now I can just see these disciples as they had this basket of leftovers on one, on one arm and a row, uh, an oar in the other, and got on this boat and sent them across the Sea of Galilee. Can't you just hear them speak? Man, did you see their eyeballs pop out when Jesus fed the multitudes with five loaves and two fishes? Did you hear what people were saying? There's a bread king who will give us everything we need. Man, we got it made. That's what they were saying as they got on that boat and headed across the Sea of Galilee with a, with a basket of, of food in there under their arms. And then all of a sudden there came that violent storm that so often comes up volatile and unexpectedly on the Sea of Galilee. I'm told that some folks won't even today cross the Sea of Galilee because of how violent and unexpected the storms come there and stir up those waters, that storm. It was just when they thought they had it made, when they thought everything was just great, the bottom fell out. Now there are going to come those times in every life, I must warn you, you already know it from your experience, in 1986 or 87, somewhere in the marathon, there are going to be those storms that come. Jesus said, He didn't say if the storm comes. He says when it comes, it's essential for, you to, for your survival that you live your life waiting on the Lord. That means to lean on Him. One last thought, please. Not only is the mercy of God for soaring and meeting the crisis, it's for the walk, the daily walk. And they shall walk and not faint, is the King James, not grow weary, is the New American Standard. You know what that means? It means that God gives strength for the dull, humdrum dullness of the daily round. It means that God keeps us steady and saintly in the daily grind. It's strength for the time when the day gets dull and boring and monotonous. It's when, the, when it's the same old stuff. 
I was getting ready the other day, and my daughter said, you guys, you men, are lucky. I said, well, why is that? She said, well, y'all don't ever have to curl your hair and fix your eyelids and, and your lips and, and uh, all that stuff. She said, we, we, every morning we have to curl our hair and all that good stuff. I said, well, you don't have it so great. What if you had to shave <laughs> every morning? There's nothing any more boring and dull and having to do that every day. The same old stuff, boring, monotonous, going the same old road to the same old place day after day after day to do the same old work for the same old boss with the same old folks. Is there anything any more monotonous than washing the same old dish day after day after day and, and vacuuming the same old room, same old floor? And can you imagine those people who are enclosed today, shut in, looking at the same old wall day after day after day? And then when you finish, you know, you look back after washing all those dishes and making all those beds and vacuuming all those floors, you look back at the end of the day and you're totally exhausted. You've got to do it all over again. You know what I'm talking about. Same old stuff. Now, it looks like that Isaiah has the sequence out of order here, doesn't it? It looks like that the greatest help from the Lord would come for soaring, for the ecstasy of flying with wings... It looks like an anticlimax, doesn't it? It ought to be that you walk and then you run, then you soar, but it is a glorious climax. Let me tell you something. It takes more strength for the daily grind than for soaring. And the finest thing, are you listening? The finest thing that can be said about the strength of God is that it meets the test of the daily tramp. It really does. It makes it possible to go day after day after day in the same old thing victoriously. For you see, most of our lives are made up not with occasions for soaring where there's no place to run but the daily trudge inch by inch, step by step. Joseph Piper observes that the two classic forms of temptation are presumption and despair. He defines the first as getting so frustrated with God that you just want to take matters in your own hands and fly off in a fit of rage. The other form of temptation he calls, he defines as getting so discouraged that you just give up and, 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 and kind of dissolve in despair. I'm here to tell you that I have encountered both forms. Both forms of temptation loom upon the horizon of my life. There have been times when I've gotten so frustrated with God that I've wanted to shake my fist with a defiant and say, God, what are you doing? Why me? And there have been times when I've gotten so discouraged that I've said, God, if you'll stop this thing, I'll get off. I'm tired. But I'm also here to tell you that I have succumbed to neither form of temptation. Why? Because down there at the bottom, I have found Isaiah's promise to be true. He gives endurance and patience. He gives strength for the daily walk. Elias Wearsley, in his book, Night, tells about the Nazi Holocaust, the extermination of the Jews. 
He said there were three men hung on the gallows one day before the whole camp where he was, two old men and a youth. He said the two old men died just as soon as they hit the end of that rope. But the strength of that young man caused him to hang in there. That pun caused him to be there when, when after the, the, the rope had reached the end. And for 30 minutes he was in the throes of horrible death. And he said there was this voice behind him saying, whispering, where's God? Where's God? He says that boy jerked on that rope and died that terrible death. He said that voice got louder. And finally the man said, where is God now? He said it was this little voice inside of me saying, look, I'm here on the gallows. And so he, he wrote, he entitled that chapter in his book, The God of the Gallows. L look at him coming to a little woman, maybe not more than 14 years of age. L listen to him. Mary, thou art highly favored among women, for you're going to conceive and bear son. He's the God of the common man. Watch him. As, as a little woman and a man make their way to Bethlehem in a long day's journey into night, he's the God of the journey. See them as they pass by Herod's temple, by the hotel, coming to the grotto, the kataluma, the place where they kept the cattle. He's the God of the lowly. And there, the scripture says, she, I wish you could read it in the Greek, it says, she and only she. It's a terribly lonely word. Without OB, without nurse, without care doctor, she all by herself alone gave birth. And there was nothing but stench and filth and blood and pain. Look at him. He's the God of suffering. And watch him in Gadara. See him in Jericho. Watch him as he makes his way to Pilate's palace, to Pilate's hall. Watch him as they beat him with a cat of nine tails, hang him on a cross to, to die. See him there in suffering and death. He's the God of redemption, the God of sin. And when he comes from the grave and ascends into glory, look at him. He's the God of power. He's the God of the gallows. Now Isaiah said, here's how you appropriate the mercy of God. You begin by remembering what you learned of God in better days. He is the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Father, 
There's some of us whose religious experience has become flat and insipid and cold. We need new wings. There's some of us who have hit the wall and we're facing a terrible, terrible crisis in our own lives. We need strength to run. But most of us, Father, have no occasion for soaring, no place to run. But we have day-by-day boring, monotonous dullness of ordinary living. We need strength to walk. Come to us, God of Christmas, God of the gallows, and meet our need today because we trust in you. We wait upon you and pray it in Jesus' name. Now would you look this way. In our early service this morning, a young woman came forward. I, she hadn't been saved but about six months. I baptized her. A young married lady, a mother. And she said, I just want to tell you so you can tell other people how much God has, how, how much He's been doing in my life. What a difference He's been making how He's changed me. And I just want to thank the Lord for it, this quiet, timid little woman. He does make a difference. He does have strength for your weariness. He knows you're tired. He knows you have need. He has mercy available, but you have to, you have to appropriate that mercy through faith. He has mercy for the lost if you'll come and confess Him as your Savior. He has mercy for the, for the weary if you'll come and claim it. And for those of us who need to join the church, today's the day to do it. Don't wait another day. Come and make this day the day of your decision and God's will accomplished in you. Let's stand to sing. You come.